Hello and welcome to the Southampton against Manchester United audio programme. In today's issue, we have the usual notes from your manager, Ralph Hasenhutl, an interview with first-team player Mohamed El Yanoussi, a small segment on the women's football team, and a lot more. Here are your pre-match notes from your manager, Ralph Hasenhutl. Dear supporters, welcome back to St Mary's as we take on Manchester United in the Premier League. I would like to welcome Eric Ten Hag to St Mary's for the first time and his coaching staff and players and all the supporters who have travelled to be here today. It is always exciting to test ourselves against such a club and there is always a special atmosphere inside the stadium for this game. I'm sure Eric would have taken a lot of encouragement from the way his team played against Liverpool on Monday night. The talent in their squad is clear to see and they produced a very good performance to beat a top team so we know they will come here feeling confident today. The same, though, is true for us, with two wins and a draw from our last three matches. Feels like a long time ago now, but our last home game against Leeds showed our fighting spirit and the strength of our squad, as our subs made an impact to help us take a point from 2-0 down. It was important that we showed a reaction and stuck to our way of playing. In the end, on an incredibly hot day, the fresh legs from the bench made the difference. This self-belief was clear again in our last Premier League game against Leicester, where we were able to win in their stadium for the third time since I am here. We've spoken about the importance of being stronger in away games this season, and to take to our first away win. We've spoken about the We have spoken about the importance about being stronger in away games this season, and to take our first away win so early is a big boost for everyone at the club. Once again, it was a story of finding the right answers and a real team effort as we made the subs work in our favour to push forward. I could see there was a refusal to accept that we could lose this game even after going 1-0 down and the response from the players was fantastic. It was particularly pleasing to score our first goal from a throw-in, which we'd been working hard on at the training ground. We carried that good form into the Carabao Cup this week with another very good victory that I will write about in more detail in my next notes on Tuesday. Overall, it has been a satisfying two weeks. It's always nice to be back at home and today we need you to help us by supporting us from the first minute to the last. We know the talent in the opposition, but if we all work together for 90 minutes, from the pitch to the stands, we will give ourselves the best chance to take a positive result. We march on. It's been a career-defining year for Mohamed El Yunusi, who's our player in focus this week. He's worked tirelessly to prove his worth in the Premier League, and as it happens, defying the odds comes quite naturally to the Norwegian saint. August might not typically feel like a make-or-break month on the football calendar, but this time last year felt dangerously close to that for Mohamed El Yunusi. It was in the final week of the first month of the season that the Norwegian international resurrected his Southampton career with a hat-trick in the modest surroundings of Newport County's Rodney Parade in South Wales. Three days later, El Yunusi celebrated the bank holiday weekend with her first Premier League goal in the rather more illustrious backdrop of St James's Park in Newcastle. In front of its towering Leeser's stand, housing the bouncing Saints fans in the top tier, not only the furthest away day from home, but the longest distance from the action. One year on, there is a justified sense of pride in proving his worth to the club, where he always longed to succeed, 
even after two years on loan at Celtic and 27 months without a competitive appearance in the red and white stripes. Just give me a chance. That was the only thing I was asking for, El Yanusi recalls. Last season, coming back here, I felt like I had a point to prove. I don't think a lot of people thought that I was going to get a chance or going to be part of the squad and get as many minutes and games as I had in the end. His 2021-2022 season ended with a roll call of 33 appearances and 8 goals in all competitions. The latter haul only spurred by James Ward-Prowse and Armando Brugger over the course of the campaign. When asked if he always felt he belonged in the Premier League, the affable midfielder takes an uncharacteristically stern term. Yes, is the straightforward reply. I had a few good offers, but I said to my agent, I don't want to hear anything. I want to get back here and take my spot. I was patient. I was going to get the best out of it. I'm a fighter, and as soon as I got one opportunity, I had to take it. I always knew I'm able to, and I'm good enough. I just needed to show it. El Ginusi still remembers his very first Saints Cup tie in August 2018 at Brighton in the Carabao Cup, when he went close to scoring in the first half. If that had gone in, maybe my first season would have been different, he wonders. Instead, his considerable contribution to Saints' biggest ever away win three years later would prove his breakthrough moment. That changed the whole thing for me, and maybe the perspective from the fans and the club for me as well, he says of his Newport hat-trick. More highlights followed, including the opening goal in the Boxing Day win at high-flying West Ham and another week to savour in February, when he followed up his equaliser in the away victory over Tottenham Hotspur with an assist for Che Adams to earn Saints a point at Old Trafford. With a quick-fire home double-header against Manchester United and Chelsea to look forward to, El Yanusi now has the chance to continue his habit of bloodying the noses of the top six, but insists the sense of anticipation is no different. I wish I could say it gives me an extra buzz, extra motivation, but not really, he says of facing England's elite. We always seem to have good games against the bigger teams, and we definitely enjoy playing against them. Sometimes our style seems to work a bit better against them, because they take more risks and play from behind, and that fits us very well in the way we all want to press. But the three points means the same. You value them just as much as when you beat another team. Born in Morocco, moi moved to Norway at a young age. At the time, pitting his wits against the Premier League's big hitters wasn't even as much as a far-fetched dream as a 28-year-old grew up in a household bearing no evidence of a future international in its midst. We didn't watch football at home, El Yanusi admits. My grandparents didn't know what football was. My dad probably watched a bit, but only World Cups. He never had a club team. None of my family, parents or uncles played football. Unusual, perhaps, given the necessary dedication for El Yanusi to reach his current level, but it's even more surprising given the success stories of his younger brother Anwar, who plays professionally in Norway, and elder cousin Talik, whose 60 caps for the Lions gives the family a combined total of 105. Nowadays, Moi says, laughing, he can't move for footballing advice. Even my mum, it's crazy, he grins. Sometimes she comes out with these names and I'm like, how do you even know who that is? Before, she wouldn't even know who Ronaldo was. But now, she's talking about this guy and that guy, saying, you should have passed that ball. I guess when you have a son or daughter and they're into something, you really go and support them and get into it. 
That's definitely true in my case, because my mum didn't know anything about football before. But now she gives me advice. She's very critical, though. Rather than his ancestors, much of El Yanusi's football influence came from friends and teachers. Other boys in his hometown of Sarpsborg would have TV showing the Premier League, though Moir was always keener to play than watch. I would say in Norway, it's mainly between Manchester United and Liverpool, and maybe the newer generations were Manchester City. But that is because Haaland is there now, he says of local allegiances. But it was another club that dominated the school scene. I had a few teachers back in high school, I think four out of five were Tottenham fans, he says. All the talk was about Tottenham, Tottenham this, Tottenham that. This week I'm watching Tottenham. My first trip to the UK to watch a game was at White Hart Lane. A friend of mine was a Tottenham fan. My first time playing in the new stadium, I scored and we won the game. Unbeknownst to himself, Elianus's header in front of 54,000 fans in North London struck a particular chord back home. A few of those teachers texted me, he reveals. Because I told them I don't remember this now, but one of them told me that I said to him, one day I'm going to score against Tottenham. I was probably 15 and I told him one day I was going to score against his team. I probably said it as a joke, not as a cocky thing, but he texted me saying, wow, you were right, I said. Right about what? And then he said it to me, and it hit me. Unwittingly, the smiling Alianusi had perfectly encapsulated the global scale of the Premier League, and in doing so justified his own determination to make his mark on Southampton. Our next segment is about David Armstrong and appreciation. David Armstrong, who passed away a week ago, aged 67, was a Southampton midfielder who played 272 games for the club between 1981 and 1987, some of the club's most successful years. Under manager Laurie McMenemy, they led Division 1, which was then the top flight, for a large chunk of the 1981-1982 season and then finished the 1983-1984 season as runners-up to Liverpool, Southampton's highest ever league position, as well as being FA Cup semi-finalists. That season, David's 15 goals in 42 league games, he scored a total of 71 goals for the Saints, meant he was deservedly voted player of the year. McMenemy had splashed out a club record £600,000 to bring him in from his first professional club, Middlesbrough. And while at Ayrson Park, he completed a run of 356 consecutive appearances and won his first England cap. He added two more while at the Dell. Ex-Saints manager Dave Merrington has this week described him as one of the best left-sided players you could come across. And there is no doubt David, or Spike as he was known to his friends, was a sort of box-to-box intelligent midfielder who modern-day managers would have swooned for. He didn't look like a footballer with his waddling gait and prematurely bold pate. His autobiography published in 2013 was titled The Bold Facts, but in his case, appearances were entirely deceptive. An ankle injury that refused to heal meant his career came to an abrupt and premature end, but David remained connected to the game in various guises, most recently by being a co-commentator on local radio. His analysis and insightful thoughts on the game were as honest and uncomplicated as he had been in his playing days, where he could pop up in both penalty areas, either clearing up defensively or gliding in on the blind side to effortlessly beat a goalkeeper with a clinical finish. It was David, whose inch-perfect far-post cross set up Steve Moran for that famous FA Cup goal at Fratton Park in 1984, and for that feat alone, the fans will never forget Spike.
Time now for your Southampton women's update. Southampton women suffered a narrow 2-0 defeat to visitors Charlton Athletic on the opening day of their championship campaign at St Mary's Stadium. In the opening minutes, Southampton looked the more threatening of the two sides and registered the first significant attempt on goal. Wilkinson looked a real threat up top in the early stages, her powerful right-footed free kick from 30 yards forcing Charlton's stopper into another smart stop as the clock hit 10. Following some scruffy pinball on the byline to the right of Rendell's goal, Charlton eventually worked a pass back into the feet of Simpkins near the penalty spot, the captain fainting left before being illegally tripped by Vine in the eyes of referee Chloe-Ann Anderson. Simpkins herself would shoulder the responsibility from 12 yards, lifting her effort beyond the outstretched arms of Rendell and into the top left corner of her net midway through the first half. Despite their quick start in the second half, a momentary lapse in defensive concentration would cost Spacey Chaos side dearly, Southampton waiting for an offside flag that never came, which allowed Johnson to steal in and slot her low, left-footed shot smartly across the body of Rendell with 52 minutes played. With Southampton committing women forward, space naturally began to appear in their defensive areas, which Charlton were quick to exploit. The 71st minute saw a long ball into the box, sparked chase between Beth Rowe and Ella Morris, before the recovering defender, in her eagerness to win possession, dragged her opponent to the floor. A second opportunity from the spot was subsequently awarded to the away side. Similarly to her teammate in the first half, Anderson opted to lift her effort into the top right corner, but Rendell wouldn't be fooled twice, and to the backdrop of Southampton's 2,444 taunting fans, got across swiftly to parry the weak effort clear. Defeat in the end, but plenty of positives to take from the opening game. Our opposition this afternoon are Manchester United, so Sam Tai has put together a tactical watch on today's opponent. After a couple of false starts, did the Eric Ten Hag era at Manchester United finally get underway against Liverpool on Monday? It certainly felt like it. Beating your arch-rivals is always huge, but to do so after experiencing the two weeks they have made it a truly special moment. Blockbuster new signings, Casemiro, watched as his new teammates finally kicked into gear, producing a display full of heart and determination to defeat Liverpool. It was night and day compared to what we saw against both Brighton and Hove Albion and Brentford. What were the big tactical changes from the first two games to this one? The biggest one came at the back, with goalkeeper David De Gea abandoning the short passing brief given to him upon Ten Hag's arrival, and opting to kick it much longer on Monday. After the dangerous, costly turnovers against Brighton and Brentford, this felt like a pragmatic and sensible adjustment. The personnel changes in the defence worked a treat, as Rafael Varane stepped into the heart of the defence and produced a masterful showing, alongside Lissandro Martinez, while Tyrell Malaysia's full Premier League debut could have barely gone better considering he was marking Mohamed Salah. Diego Dallo matched his energy on the other flank. The play style in general felt much more direct than his first two games. United had a 3-4 pass routine to get him behind Liverpool that they tried often, attacking either the space behind Trent Alexander-Arnold or the gap between he and Joe Gomez. What's the biggest danger they can pose to the Saints? The same direct threat in behind should be a concern to Southampton, with Marcus Rashford's speed with the chief focus of it. He can make the runs from a central striking position or cutting inward from the left, depending on where he's fielded and who Ten Hag selects to accompany him. 
Liverpool suffered greatly at the hands of this run, which was also executed by Anthony Alanga at times due to their very high defensive line. Southampton's press can draw the defensive line up the field in a similar manner, meaning they'll need to be on red alert for this movement. Where do Manchester United's vulnerabilities lie? The first order of business should be to apply pressure to David De Gea on the ball and test how willing he is to go long again. If United do want to revert to short build-up play, Southampton can pounce upon it, a la Brentford. Defending in set pieces has been a big problem for the Red Devils so far as well. They're a team on the shorter side, and while that doesn't always equate to aerial weakness, they struggle to clear their lines efficiently against Liverpool and were dominated by a big Brentford team. James Ward-Prowse's whip deliveries cause carnage wherever he goes, so a United side with a predisposed nervousness from dead ball situations could be an effective target. Time now for the My Favourite Match section. The second in our series, which offers supporters the opportunity to write in their own style about their favourite match. Guest writer this week is Ian Carnaby, sports writer and broadcaster who was born and educated in Southampton. Ian describes the Southampton versus Manchester United FA Cup third round tie from the 4th of January 1964. Southampton against Manchester United in the FA Cup third round in 1964 always looks like a tie to command public attention. In those days, the beloved competition dominated headlines with an effortless ease, and here was a scriptwriter's dream. The holders, and arguably the most famous club in the world, against the unsung second division outfit, which had run them close in the previous year's undistinguished semi-final, with the only goal bundled in by Dennis Law. Grainy newsreel shows that it looked just as scrappy today as it did then. But the long, quiet journey home could not dent the pride Saints supporters felt in an exhilarating run, including the second replay 5-0 thrashing of Nottingham Forest at White Hart Lane, which made ultimate glory more than just a fleeting dream. Ted Bates's cannily assembled team had made its mark on 1963. Four days into the new year came the unlikely chance of revenge, something strongly desired by most, though certainly not all, this being Manchester United, of the 29,164 crammed into the Dell. Law was suspended, but Bobby Charlton played and Matt Busby relied on two young wingers making only their second appearance. Willie Anderson on the right and someone called George Best on the left. The Saints, meanwhile, had the immensely promising 18-year-old Martin Chivers, not long out of Taunton School up front, alongside George Kirby, whose quiet, unassuming demeanour off the pitch gave way to an implacable demon on it, preferable to the other way round. This match was an unforgettable contrast to the Villa Park spectacle. Chances came for both teams before the Saints, attacking the Milton Road end, thrillingly struck twice in a minute before half-time. We thought these were goals to decide a cup tie as Chivers sent a fierce drive beyond David Gaskell before Terry Payne, reacting first to John Simon's typically rapid burst down the left, came between defenders to nod home the cross. Some reports said Payne soared, but to me, he glanced it in. After 58 years, I still think that way, but it hardly matters. A Payne header was not so much a connoisseur's item as a unique event. A foreign visitor would not have known which team stood 7th in the old 2nd Division. Much has been said and written about the Saints' defensive tactics after the break, and even more about the days of wine and roses, to put it politely, at Butlins in Rotting Dean which is where Ted took the team to relax over the new year. 
Well, we've always had players who like to drop without engaging in wild bacchanalian excess, but maybe things drifted that way a little. The 2-0 lead didn't last. United hit back with a Graham Moore header after only three minutes of the second half. And with the Saints pushed further and further back, Pat Cruyland and Maurice Setters cramped on the halfway line and directed a steady stream of balls into the box. Sirand, never the quickest, was lethal, given time and space, while Setters, a rugged defensive left half, a man who would undoubtedly have been the foreman of any building site, lent admirable assistance. Today, there's no one who even sounds like Setters, never mind play like him. A free kick from Bill Fulkes and a faint touch by David Hurd, with a weary Tommy Trainer flailing desperately and unavailingly on the goal line brought the equaliser, before... Creeland ended a pulsating encounter with his left foot. When dreams die, they sometimes end in the cruelest, most matter-of-fact way. With eight minutes left, United completed their recovery. It wasn't even all that close, something which, in their star-studded dressing room, must have seemed highly unlikely to the United players at half-time. United didn't retain the FA Cup, though. In a run similar to that of the Saints the previous year, they finally hammered Sunderland 5-1, George Best having saved them in a free-free draw at Old Trafford before Bobby Moore subdued Law at Hillsborough and took West Ham to Wembley. The Saints, meanwhile, scored a hatful of goals, exactly 100 more than anyone in the second division, and finished fifth. In his own quiet way, Ted was getting there. Promotion to the sunlit uplands was only two years away. Turning the page, on to our next topic. Inside SO14. Southampton Football Club are delighted to announce a signing of midfielder Sam Amo Amior on a scholarship deal. The 16-year-old winger joins the club from Tottenham Hotspur's academy, where he made 10 appearances for the under-18s last season. Amo Amior also adds to the pool of academy players gaining international experience to the club, having represented England at under-17 and under-16 level. The exciting youngster hailed the club's clear pathway as one of the main reasons for choosing the South Coast. In the past, if you look at Southampton, you see a lot of young players progressing through the first team, said Amo Amior. I thought it's a very good platform for me to progress through and hopefully I'll be able to do just that at Southampton. I'm a good dribbler. I like to receive one-twos off others and get in the box and score. My aim is to get into the first team as quick as possible, but first I've got to do well with the 18s and progress through to that level. Head of youth recruitment, Dan Rice, added, We are extremely excited and pleased to have signed Sam. He's a player that was highly sought after and is regarded as one of the most talented players in his age group at this time. Sam is a dynamic, attacking player with the ability to play off either wing. He's a tricky and exciting player who possesses a high level of technique and skill which allows him to excel in 1v1 situations. On to our final section now, and a firm fan favourite. It's time for Franny Benali. It was great to see the Saints get their first win of the new season against Leicester City last weekend. It was the perfect tonic. There is a chance to change things around a bit more with five substitutions this season, and it has worked extremely well for us so far. The impact of those coming off the bench is also a testament to the competition we have in the squad. The starting players will know that they have to perform because there will be other players waiting to take their place and this can only be healthy. The second half substitutions against Leicester made an outstanding impact on the game again, following on from the comeback against Leeds the week before. It was a big three points for us and sets us up nicely for the next two home games. We have a good young squad 
but they have shown resilience and ability to turn things around when it wasn't going their way. You can sense the character and strength that they have, and the key for them now is taking leads in games and going on to secure wins from being in front. Saints face Manchester United today, and I'll be covering the game with BBC Radio 5 Live. Clearly, United have had a poor start to their season, and it is certainly not the start that Eric Ten Hag would have wished for. Very rarely do United arrive at Southampton under such intense pressure. Saints will know that they need to earn the right to get a result. There is an opportunity for us to put in a good performance in front of our fans and make it hard for teams like United to come to St Mary's. It will be an important game for both sides. One for us to continue our good run, but also one that could prove massive for United and their new manager. This fixture has always been a fascinating one and has produced some good results for us in the past. Since my last column, Saints women have played their first fixture of the new season. They didn't get the result that they would have wanted, but playing their league games at St Mary's will be a brilliant thing for them. It is always a learning curve when you step into a high division after promotion and you're not going to win every match, but if the players come away having learned something from a game, then they can take that forward. Lastly, it was great to get along to support the Saints Foundation's golf day on Thursday. The work that the charity does in and around the city of Southampton makes a huge difference to people's lives and continues to inspire.